good to be with you all uh, this morning. If you would, please turn with me to uh, Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. We'll continue our look uh, through the prophet of Hosea. And uh, as we look now at this this passage, we're, we're given a history lesson. And uh, we know it's, it's said that uh, those who do not learn history are what? They're doomed to repeat it. And this is true in the macro and the micro scale. It's true of nations. It's true of civilizations. Uh, it's true of ourselves as individuals. Uh, we constantly struggle with habitual sins. We, we struggle with lessons that we feel like we should have already learned and have learned in the past, but we're continuing to learn them again. Uh, we see it in our children. Uh, our children struggle in the same ways that we do. That could be scary uh, for parents at times to see uh, themselves in their children. And so it is uh, with the church as well, with the people of God. God's people, whether it be the ancient church of Israel, whether it be the church this morning, the church today. We must always remember our history, remember where we came from. Our passage this morning is a history lesson to do just that. Uh, In fact, both of these uh, chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, are a, uh, a collection of lessons and reminders for Israel of significant events in their past. Uh, this morning we're only concerned with chapter 12, and in this chapter God's uh, prophet uh, recalls a handful of stories from the life of Jacob, uh, stories that uh, we, we had read to us uh, earlier in our, in our service. Uh, these stories of Jacob, uh, later renamed Israel, they, they serve as a reminder, as a sober warning for God's people, for God's people then and for God's people today. Because, as, as we'll see, the, the great, great, and great, and so on, grandchildren of the man Jacob, of, of the man Israel, they did not learn the lessons of, of their father. And so now the nation is, is facing suffering, it's facing judgment because of the breaking of the covenant with God. And so now as we, we look to the text, let me read this passage for us. Uh, I will begin in the last verse of chapter 11. That verse really belongs with what follows. So let me read for us now. Uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, and through chapter 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. 
in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of your holy scripture. Lord, we thank you for your servants, the prophets. We thank you that by your spirit you inspired them not only to preach this message, but to commit it to writing, that your people now, that that we too might benefit from their message. And by that same spirit, Lord, would you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to respond to this message. May we see Christ as you have shown him forth to us, and may we receive him and rest upon him alone for our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in previous weeks, uh, as we have been going through Hosea, we've seen uh, just how uh, the ferocity of the law, the severity of the law, and the the sweet balm and the the promises and the comfort of the gospel are so beautifully juxtaposed next to each other throughout this entire book of Hosea. Hosea begins in chapter 1 with the Lord leveling these, these harsh, fierce accusations, but perfectly justified accusations against his people. But then we get to chapter 3 and we see one of the most vivid depictions of the gospel in all of Scripture. But then chapter 4 follows and we're reminded of our sin and the sinfulness of our sin and the punishment uh, justly uh, deserved because of our sin. But then chapter 6 gives us another gospel reprieve. But in case we've already forgotten... The sinfulness of sin, chapter 7 continues, reminds us of our depravity and our our condition, yet God is never content to leave us in our sin and misery, but the gospel again is proclaimed to us in chapter 11. We're relieved uh, from that heavy burden of the law, but now again in chapter 12, we're reminded. Chapter 12 and 13, they, they take on a different shape from what Uh, we've seen previously, these chapters, again, they demonstrate to us the sinfulness of sin, the severity of sin, and they do that through a collection of history lessons. That's why we read from that portion of Jacob's story earlier uh, this morning. We didn't have time to read all of the story of Jacob, but I encourage you, as you have time this afternoon, to to read those stories in their entirety for yourselves, those stories in uh, Genesis. These stories are, are our history as well as children of Abraham, as descendants through that line. This is our story. This is the the church's story. We do well to know our history. But only in our short time this morning, uh, we won't be able to uh, tackle every point of interest in this passage. Uh, That's been one of the most difficult things for me in uh, preaching through Hosea is is trying to stay on the the main target. There's so much packed in in these, these passages 
But with our, our time this morning, I want us to stay focused on the main point, lest we miss the, the glory of Christ that is shown forth uh, in this story. I uh, just returned uh, some of uh, the other officers as well. Uh, we were at the Banner of Truth conference uh, this past week. And naturally, uh, as always happens at a banner conference, uh, my love and appreciation for the Puritans was rekindled uh, and uh, my wallet uh, a little bit lighter (laughs) as well. But if I can quote uh, from William Perkins, and he wrote this, he, he, he said, The sum of preaching is to preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. And so that's my one aim this morning, because in this passage, we are given several stories, we're given several images that teach us one fundamental truth of human nature. And that is, left to our own devices, left to ourselves, we will always naturally pursue our own selfish and our ultimately our own destructive desires. But for the grace of God, shown forth to us in Christ, Our desires have now changed. We are now able to pursue him, to return to him, to hold fast to him, to love Christ. That's what our passage is all about this morning. That's that's the history lesson if we just can sum it up right now. What is the lesson for God's people this morning? Simply put, it is that you need Christ. (laughs) That is the message. Seek Christ. Return to Jesus. If you have not sought him yet in your life this morning, then this morning is the time to seek him. If you have sought him, if you have professed him, then this is the time to return to him and to hold on tight to him. To recall to your mind all that Hosea has already uh, told us and described to us about this Messiah who is the Christ, our Savior. He is the one who pays the redemption price for your soul. In Hosea chapter 3, in chapter 6, verse 1, he is the one who is torn that we might be healed. He is the one who was raised up on the third day. He is the one whom the Father loved, who called out of Egypt in chapter 11 so that he might lead us out of our Egypt as the new and better Moses. Lead us out of our sin and misery. The new and better Joshua who will lead us across the Jordan River at that time when he calls us home. That's the lesson of the text. That's our history lesson. Now we're sinners that sinners need Christ. So let's look now. Let's look at this text. Let's look at this history lesson. This passage, it's, it's a, it can feel sporadic at times. It's, a, it's a, a collection of different stories and vignettes. But we can see there's, there's uh, uh, three uh, main headings, three sections to this, this history lesson that we'll walk through uh, as we go through this text together. And so that's where we're going this morning. And this first the first part of this passage, the first part of this text, chapter 11, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 1, those two verses where we again have the accusation leveled against Jacob, against Israel, against Ephraim, as he's called here as well. Before getting to the historical account, before getting to the history lesson, this passage begins with a brief statement of current events, of what's going on. And the first thing Hosea tells us in this passage is, is that they are being deceitful. Hosea reminds God's people of their current predicament. In case we've forgotten, and don't we always need a reminder? 
But God laments the situation through his prophet, and he says that Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. Israel is, is deceitful. They're without sense. Uh, maybe you remember in chapter 7 uh, where Israel is described as a dove or a pigeon, silly, without sense, flighty like a bird. Why are they described this way? Well, well we're told previously, we're also reminded here of their duplicitousness, that they multiply falsehood and violence. We're told that they make a covenant with Assyria while at the same time, oil and tribute is being carried to Egypt. And so in other words, if Israel isn't even faithful to the covenants they make with man, how much less are they faithful to the covenant that God has made with them? And that's what's going on presently. And that's why they're facing judgment. And we can, uh, we can see behind the passage, if you will, the conversation that's going on here. God is telling his people, what are you doing? I'm going to judge you for this unfaithfulness. You're selling to, to Egypt. You're making covenants with Assyria. You're doing all these things. And, and Israel's pushing back. Well, it's, it's just one mistake. It's just, I have to suffer all this punishment, all this pain for just, I won't do it again. It's just one mistake. Why is it so harsh? God says, one mistake? <laughs> one transgression? No, no, no. Let me recount for you the history. Let me remind you of where you've come from. This isn't something, this deceitfulness, this isn't something that you picked up along the way. But from the very beginning, literally from the point of birth, all the way through your life, this is how you have always been. And so that's when he turns to this, this second section of, of uh, this passage, this, this history lesson that begins in verse 2. In these next five verses, verses 2 through 6, the people of Israel are reminded of, of four important events from their father's life. And so in rapid fire, we're pointed back to the historical account of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, in the book of Genesis. This isn't just one transgression. This has been a lifestyle from the very beginning. And so first we're reminded of the account of Jacob's birth. Isaiah 12, uh, 3 says, in the womb he took his brother by the heel. We read that earlier in chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 25. We're, we're told that uh, in Genesis that Isaac's wife Rebecca, uh, like her mother-in-law, she's barren. Uh, but God, the God of the covenant, uh, Yahweh, his memorial name, she, uh, he opens her womb and she conceives. Yet these children struggle together in her womb, and so she cries out to God, why is this happening? What's going on? And God speaks to her and says in Genesis 25, 23, as we read earlier, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. A depiction right away. So we'll, we know from Romans chapter 9 of God's unconditional and divine election. But even so, uh, she gives birth according to God's word. And Esau, the, the one who's born for, uh, first, is closely followed by his brother. His brother who is, is clutching Esau's heel. And thus we are told 
that his name is Jacob, which means to grab or to clutch the heel, an idiom of deceit, an idiom of of acting in a deceitful way or of cheating. And we're told that this is an appropriate name for him because no sooner after they are born do we read next in Genesis that Jacob cheats his brother out of his birthright. We read earlier. And we didn't read this part of Genesis, but I trust you're familiar with the story as, as Rick referenced it as well, that Jacob cheats his brother out of his blessing by dressing in animal furs to trick his now blind uh, father. And so Esau, Esau cries out, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Literally, he says, Is he not rightly called Jacob because he has Jacobed me <laughs> these two times? Twice now. He took away my birthright, and now he's taken away my blessing. So this is the first part of the history lesson. Israel, you have not just now become deceitful. You have, become, you have been deceitful, literally. You were born in deceit. You were born in sin. This is, this is who you are by nature. And next we move and we jump forward in time to a later event in Jacob's life. Now an adult, we read that he strove with God. Genesis 32. What a remarkable passage in Scripture. What a remarkable event in his life. So much could be said about this passage. Uh, But why does Hosea bring it to mind here? Well, it's mentioned here because in this struggle with God, God changed his name to Israel. No longer will you be called Israel, but you'll be called, or you'll be called Jacob, rather, but now you'll be called Israel because you have striven with God. Israel means strives with God, and is that not the perfect name for God's people. We see a blessing in that as well. Third part of this history lesson now, it jumps forward a bit in time again in uh, verse, verse 4. He strove with the angel and prevailed, re- referencing uh, Genesis 32. And then he says he wept and sought his favor. And so now Hosea is jumping us forward in time to uh, Jacob and Esau's uh, meeting and reconciliation in Genesis 33, where we see and we read that both men were weeping as they met one another after so many years. And then the fourth and final part of this history lesson jumps back in time to Genesis 28, where Jacob met God at Bethel, as we read earlier as he was fleeing from uh, his brother Esau, as he did not deserve God's mercy, God met with him there, reiterated to him the same promise given to Abraham and to Isaac, and it'll be through this cheater, through this trickster, through this deceiver, that the promised offspring will come. And it's through this offspring that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic promise will be fulfilled and so we see from his birth, Jacob was deceitful. From the, from the very beginning, Israel was always contentious with God. His names were well chosen. And so far, in this history lesson, we see how Israel the man and Israel the people, his descendants, have always struggled against their God by nature. And so far in this history lesson, we've seen God's indictment is true. 
Israel's current deceitfulness is in fact the same deceitfulness that he's had from the very beginning. And yet, even in the midst of all these episodes, we see God's uh, providential hand as he provides for him, as he meets with him at Bethel, as he blesses him, as he reconciles him to his brother whom he deceived. But there are still uh, a few more history lessons that he needs to learn, that we need to be reminded of. So let's look through these briefly. In chapter, or sorry, verse uh, 7 through 14, we're, we're given even more history lessons in these uh, short and pithy statements that almost feel disconnected at times, but they all serve to connect back to the main theme that Israel rightly deserves the punishment he's receiving. So in verses 7 and 8, we're told that a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. But then we're told that Ephraim has said, But I'm rich, I've found wealth for myself, but in all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. It's a bold statement, a bold proclamation of his innocence. But when combined together, these two verses show the arrogance of Israel. That word merchant uh, there is the word traitor. It's the word uh, for a Canaanite. And why, why is that word uh, translate, translated that way? Well, they were the traders. They were the merchants in that world. They, they used false balances. That's who they were. And so we see in Israel's arrogant self-proclamation, their own words indict them that they're no different than the Canaanites whom they're supposed to uh, remove from the land. They've become Canaanites. And then in verse 9, we move now to the Exodus event. Like we saw in Hosea 11, verse uh, 5, God is going to reverse his deliverance, as it were. They're going to now again dwell in tents in the wilderness, not in the presence of their God in the land that he has promised to them. Why is that? It's because we see uh, that uh, their idolatry has, has grown to such an extent They have not listened to the prophets, verse 10, that God has spoken through, that multiplied visions, that sent them to the people. They have disregarded them. And instead, in these cities of Gilead, the city of Gilgal, there's a sacrifice of bulls, but not to the Lord. And so their altars will be covered over and destroyed. In verses 12 and 13, We're now reminded again of Israel's deceitfulness and in an episode where his deceitfulness is returned upon him as the deceiver was deceived, as the trickster was tricked, as we heard already by his uncle Laban who who gave him uh, Leah instead of Rachel. Is this not what you deserved? (laughs) Did you not get a little comeuppance then? And finally, verse 14 we see a summary of the accusation and the punishment that is due to him. And we're left with this deflating statement. And we're said, Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So, therefore, this is what's going to happen. His Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So we get to the end, verse 14, this, this blistering rapid fire uh, look back through history and we're left 
with the same conclusion. <laughs> it's hard to argue when you think back on it. It's like, oh yeah, I, that is part of our history. It wasn't just a one-time thing, but this has been the case forever. Every piece of the evidence that, that God lays on the table, it substantiates his claim. They are deceitful. They have been, uh, they've surrounded the Lord with lies. Uh, This is what you have done. This is what you're currently doing. This is how it's always been. And now, payment has come due. And so we're left there. But is this passage all uh, doom and gloom? Is that the end of the story? Thankfully, by the grace of God, it is not. In prophetic and in poetic fashion, Hosea, he offers us a glimpse of the gospel even in the midst of, of these accusations and these, these uh, long uh, uh, these long sections on the law. He gives us these, these gospel uh, glimpses and these gospel promises. And he does this uh, for us in the very middle of this passage in verse 6. Look back there with me. And we see that amid the history lesson, God reminds Jacob of his mercy. You see, this is not only a history lesson of Israel's deceitfulness, but it is also a history lesson of God's faithfulness. In verse 6, we're presented with a call to action. This was spoken by God to Jacob, is now spoken to all God's people through God's Spirit. In response to this history of God's faithfulness, this faithfulness and this mercy through Christ that overcomes our sin, that overcomes our covenant breaking, that overcomes our wickedness, how now are we to live? And so Hosea gives us three ways, three things we are to do in response. First, we are told to return. We're told to return to our God. What does that word mean exactly? At times we, we can hear it often, but what is, what is meant by this one simple word? I really appreciate how uh, one commentator uh, puts it so helpfully. He says that the Bible is rich in idioms describing man's responsibility in the process of repentance. For example, those phrases would include, uh, incline your hearts unto the Lord. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Wash your heart of wickedness. Break up your fallow ground, which we heard recently from Hosea chapter 10. All these expressions, he goes on, all these expressions of man's penitential activity, however, are subsumed and summarized by this one verb, return. For better than any other verb, it combines in itself the two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn toward good. So that's what it means to return. We turn away and we turn toward. And so that's what we are called to do. And so what areas then in your life do you need to return to the Lord? What acres of, of your heart have you let grow fallow and cold? What, what places do you need to break up? Where do you need to wash yourself of wickedness to incline your hearts to him and to return to God? That's the first thing we are to do when we're met with this lesson from history. Second, 
we're told to hold fast to love and justice. Well, what does it mean to hold fast? That word is to, to protect or to keep. Word used in the garden. We are to, to keep or to protect. We're to watch over. We're to hold fast. And we're to do that over love and over justice. That, the word love, the word hesed. It's not the kind of love we talk about when we talk about how much we love ice cream or how much I love Cardinals baseball. That's, that's getting closer, but it's still not quite there. That's the kind of covenantal loyalty, the kind of steadfast love that God has for his people, the kind of love that moves us to obedience and conformity to God's law. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. That's the kind of love we're supposed to, to hold on to and to grasp a holistic dedication of our entire lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength to obeying our Lord and all that he has commanded. We're to hold fast to love and we're to hold fast to justice. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that we have to fight uh, for every social cause or, or what, what is involved in, in justice there? Well, may I suggest first and primarily that that means we must seek conformity to God's law in our life. Our lives need to be conformed to what God defines as just. We know that the wages of sin is death and God's perfect justice requires the payment to be made, but only for the atoning sacrifice of Christ is divine justice satisfied. In him our sin is paid in full and it's in recognition of the cost of our salvation that we endeavor in every area of our lives to do what is right and what is just according to God's holy law. We are to be holy. We are to seek justice. We are to love kindness, promote covenantal loyalty to our God in every area of our life. To be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. So much more could be said, but let us look at that final, that last word, that last thing we are to do. The third thing we are to do in response to this lesson from history, in response to all that God has saved us out of, is we are to wait continually for our God. We are called to wait. For God's people in that time, that meant waiting for his deliverance again from exile. For, for us today, that waiting looks like a lot of different things. As we talked about in Sunday school, we each have our own unique cross to bear in this life. But this is not a passive waiting that we are called to, of watching the, the seconds uh, tick by on the clock. I hope you're not doing that right now. I promise I'm almost done. That's not a passive waiting, but it's an active, it's an eager, it's an expectant waiting. It's a waiting that is faithful because we know that God is going to act on our behalf. And this imperative, Hosea, he reminds his readers, he reminds us of our forefather Jacob who prayed for his sons in Genesis 49 and he prayed to them and he said, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He looked ahead to it. He expected it. He knew it would happen and he's waiting patiently for it. And this has been the cry of God's people always. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
my soul waits for the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah tells us those who wait for the Lord will not be put to shame, but rather they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so as we we close, we see these, these three things that we are left to do. We are to return to the Lord in repentance. We're to, to keep love and justice, hold fast to it, and we're to wait for him continually. But did you notice what precedes those imperatives? We accomplish these things, Scripture tells us, by the help of of your God. Literally, it says, by your God, in your God. That preposition, meaning agency or the means or the instrument through which we're able to accomplish this is in or through or by your, our God. God does not call us to return to him to keep his commandments and to wait for him out of our own strength but even provides the very strength through his spirit to accomplish what he has called us to do. The one who calls you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is the same one who is at both at work in you to will and to work to accomplish the very same. And so just as it has been my aim to preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ, so as we return, as we seek the Lord, that's also our motto. We seek to return to the Lord. We, we seek him, we seek to obey him, and we do this to one Christ, by Christ, who wills and works in us to return to him, all for the praise and glory and honor of Christ. And so as we leave now this morning, as we endeavor to live for him in all that we say, all that we do, let's return to him. Let's go to him. Let's seek him in prayer that he would do that work in us. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor by your spirit, would you be at work in us and revealing to us the areas of our lives that we have not yet surrendered to you, uh, even hidden sins, hidden from ourselves, but that you see. Lord, would you give us the opportunity to obey you, to seek your face, to return to you, and by your spirit, would you give us the grace to do that? Uh, We pray that we would always, ever, uh, rest in Christ alone for our salvation, look to him daily for our every need, Seek to honor and glorify him in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think. May we do that even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.